Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. We can't fix what's wrong if we can't talk about it. We can't move the conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. And unless we push the edges of what it means to connect, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. Every month, I invite a fabulous big thinking guest to join me to talk about what it means to be human together. We'll have deep conversations about the big stuff, life, love, and legacy, and how you can foster connection for yourself. Let's start to reconnect the world, one conversation at a time. I'm joined by Dr. Steven Snyder, a sex and relationship therapist, associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Mount Sinai's School of Medicine in New York City, and the author of the acclaimed sex and relationship book, Love Worth Making, How to Have Ridiculously Great Sex in Long-Lasting Relationship. I'm so excited to talk to you. I just, I have to say I'm shaking a little bit because I am, I really admire your work. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Likewise. I'm glad it's mutual. Yeah, this is this is really cool. Um, I made this huge list of things that I wanted to maybe talk about with you. Okay. Um, th- I was thinking, just listening, you know, re-listening to your book, I was thinking about things um, like restoring desire, how we keep desire alive. Yes. Um, you know, talking about that messaging of acceptance and understanding, how, how we can help people get there, the awkwardness uh-huh. of midlife. Uh-huh, sure. Um, the sacredness of sexuality. Good. I love how you talk about mindfulness being that same word for the mind and the heart in many languages. And you talk about the practical steps that you prescribe with throughout your book as being mindful acts as well. So I thought maybe we could touch on that also. And then performance becomes such a big thing. And then there's this thought that I just wanted to touch on also about what happens when when one partner wants to simmer and the other kind of wants to be taken, you know, that old, that old story, it shows up often in a lot of couples. I think that's a fascinating thing. You know, nobody really knows what that's about. Right. That thing about being taken because it's definitely not an egalitarian issue. No, I feel like it's a, it's a message we get from overculture. I don't think so. I think it's something deeply wired inside us. Say more. I think that there's something deeply wired in most heterosexual women that I talk to where they want to be taken by somebody who's bigger and stronger and more powerful. And you're, you're thinking this is like a biological or, or psychobiological I, kind of wiring. I have no idea, but I don't think it's just cultural messages. I think that it's in there, and I don't know. In my book, I stay kind of agnostic about it. I call it the conventional script. Mm -hmm. The conventional script, a little bit like the conventional script for traditional couples dancing. He asks her to dance. She agrees. He takes her, leads, twirls her around, throws her around, does all sorts of inches, flips her up and down, and so forth, and she loves it. It doesn't exist in the other direction. No woman fantasizes about taking a man and throwing him around and twirling him up around and down. And no man fantasizes about doing that, being done that with a woman. There's something in it that's directional, and I don't know what it is. And I don't think anybody think anybody knows it is. But I think the honest thing is to say it's there. I, you know, I'm I'm thinking of the couple Joe and Serena that you talk about in your book. Uh huh. And you talk a lot about, you know, they're, that they deserve to feel wanted. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering how that plays into this, because I, I'm thinking that, that that desire to be wanted yes. 
is a part of also the desire to be taken. I think it is, but I think they're not identical things. Joe and Serena, for those of you who haven't read the book, uh, are a lesbian couple, both of whom had trauma growing up where they didn't really feel entitled to be paid attention to and to be treated as uh, somebody who's worth paying attention to, really entitled to be wanted or desired. And that manifests in adult life with uh, Serena uh, just making arguments, picking fights at bad times, doing kind of destructive things, which kind of say to Joe, you love me? Well, do you love this? Can you love this? You see, I'm really unlovable. Now, that's a, a, a dynamic that you see in lots of couples. It's an important one, a very destructive one. But what you were talking about a few minutes ago was something else, which was the desire to be taken. Yes. I think that's something that you see sometimes in lesbian couples. But lesbian couples, by the very nature of the fact that they're two women, are outside of the conventional script. Most heterosexual women live in the conventional script. And the conventional script has something in it about being with somebody who's bigger and stronger, who's going to dominate in some way. Uh, and it's got to be blended with other compelling qualities for it not to feel off-putting. But with the right blend of consideration and dominance, it's catnip to a lot of heterosexual women. And, I, and the problem seems to be in those heterosexual relationships when that balance is off. Absolutely. A man could either be too dominant or the other extreme, not dominant enough. Or the woman could be too dominant. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you've seen. I've seen some situations where the woman is, I don't know if too dominant is really the right word, but it maybe she's just, she's a very assertive, very strong woman. Yes. She takes up space. Um, you know, perhaps she, she has a career that puts her very much in the forefront in the quote unquote man's world. You know, she, she rolls with, with that more masculine side of her energy um, yeah. professionally. And so at home, things feel more off balance. I think that's entirely true. Now I understand what you mean by too dominant. I thought you meant too dominant in the bedroom. Oh, no. I, yeah. I, Classic, I think in my practice, women who are, uh, what uh, a writer I like very much called high-octane women. Classically, such women yearn when they talk to me for somebody who will allow them simply to surrender in the bedroom and not have to channel all that masculine energy. Yes. And so uh, in the bedroom, even those dominant women frequently don't want to be so dominant in bed. In my practice, I see a lot of men Men who have a dominant tendency, a naturally dominant tendency, women line up around the block for them. Men who have a naturally submissive tendency, and there are many men like this, they have trouble getting a date because women smell something that's off with these men. I have a, uh, a client who's into BDSM, and uh, she wants a dom, and she saw some guy, and she goes, nah, too stubby for me. There's a scene in Fifty Shades of Grey where Christian Grey, who really is kind of a switch, um, he's usually a dumb, but every once in a while, in great distress, he turns sub, and it really weirds out uh, uh, Anastasia. Uh, it really weirds her out. Uh, women don't seem to like this very much. There's something in the wiring, and I don't know what it is. Um, I talk a lot with my uh, female sex therapy colleagues, because there's probably seven or eight female sex therapist for every male sex therapist. And I say, you know, there's one thing I can never understand about being a heterosexual woman, which is liking the idea of being with somebody bigger and stronger than me. I would never want to do that. That would feel really, really scary. And they go, no, no, we love it. There's something in there. And I, I don't think, think we know. I, don't think I we think know it's it. about the surrender. I, that's certainly a word yeah. I hear a lot that, Many women experience that they're thinking a lot more than the men in their lives and that they're thinking all the time and that they uh, uh, wish when they're behind closed doors in the bedroom just to be able to turn off their minds and just surrender. Just like classically in that couple's traditional dancing, the woman, the man just takes charge and he flips her and turns her and twirls her every way he wants to 
and she just allows her body to just go with it. And, yeah, I, and think I, I think there's a big there. distinction between surrendering and submission. And it's it yet yeah, it's a fine line that I think a lot of us kind of dance on and don't always give the attention to between I, the two. I think it is a fine line. However, submission is also something that's erotic for many, many women. As Esther Perel said, she said, you know, a lot of us will fantasize at night about things that we protest against during the day. Isn't that interesting? The erotic space, I find, becomes becomes the place of enactments. It becomes the place where, where so much of our unprocessed world really shows up. Absolutely. Without question. And it doesn't know anything about morality. If anything, it's, it's often amoral or uh, counter-moral. And it just, uh, it just does what it does. A large part of what I talked about in my book is talking about the things which are kind of universal in the erotic space. And most of those are completely unobjectionable. But there are some things which uh, many people, like they say, they would fantasize at night about, but protest during, about during the day. So it's a tough, it's a tough thing. And, uh, you know, you could try and parse it and say that surrender uh, is okay and submission maybe is not, but a lot of people so fantasize about both of those things. You know, the other thing that this is making me think about is you talk about like how what we're, maybe what we're looking for when we're trying to restore desire is a stillness or um, a stillness of mutual connection, right? Like kind of getting back into that place. And I'm thinking that that, that might be what this framework is leaning in towards a little bit that we're, we're really talking about in that surrender where we're slowing things down and we're connecting well that's entirely possible um and i really want to talk with you about that in a few minutes but i just want to say something about this other thing that we were talking about about this surrender slash submission please do which is we don't really know what it is i don't know what it is i don't think anybody does I wonder, though, whether it's post-traumatic. I wonder if it's somehow encoded from hundreds of thousands of years, mostly going back before the origin of spoken language 40,000 years ago, to women's precarious position uh, in terms of what happens to their sexuality when they become sexually mature as early teens. I imagine that what the fate of a woman in those early times was depended highly on the ability of her local community of 50 or 100 people or whoever it was, the hunter-gatherers wandering around, to protect her. And that if she didn't have strong people to protect her, that she was really in danger of being raped. You know, the words rape and ravish originally meant the same thing. And my guess is that for most of our great, 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 great grandfather, great, great grandmothers, uh, sexual safety wasn't always something that you could count on in the absence of law enforcement and in the absence of uh, universally agreed on uh, uh, morals. And I just wonder if some of this stuff about wanting a big, strong guy to submit to and so forth is some kind of traumatic memory of dangerous times for women. And I wonder if some of it is yearning for somebody who's big and bad and tough and who can pr pr protect you against all the other big, bad, tough guys who really might have not had your best interest at heart. That is so interesting. But that's just speculation on my part. I really don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. No, but it's it's something to to put our minds around and to think with for a little bit. I I really appreciate you bringing the ideology of the words back to us that rape and ravage were once they meant the same thing. That's we're we're certainly we're certainly a loving species, and I uh, I heard your podcast, which I liked very much, with Terry Real, where he talked about how attachment and uh, bonding these things are extremely important. And without them, we die. We're certainly a loving species. But we're also a violent species. And we have two parts of our nature. And I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know what life was like 100,000, 200,000 years ago when all our genes got kind of selected for and laid down. 
Yeah, but there's something to that, right? That that we have the the it, we're both end kind of creatures that we have the ability to connect, but we also have this capacity for violence and for um, disconnection. Absolutely, and we have the ability to connect. We also have the ability to disconnect. Yeah, we have the ability to empathize, and we all have to have the ability to de-empathize and to treat people as objects, to treat people as uh, others, and uh, uh, not members of our tribe. And we see this hugely these days, unfortunately, uh, in in our, in our politics and in politics all over the world. And so we do have these tendencies, and it's just a question of which one we feed, really. And and I think what what I'm seeing, and I'm guessing on some level, perhaps what you and other uh, couples therapists and sex therapists may be seeing more of these days, is that these political divides are also showing up between couples and how they're presenting and what they're wanting in terms of their long-term marriages. And this is, I think, where your expertise really shines, where you're talking about how to restore desire in long-term relationships. Okay. That's really, that's really, it's a, the three questions bound into one. Yeah, I tend to do that. I, I apologize. Can I walk this back a little bit? Yes, please do. Okay, good. Um, what I want to walk us back to is some of what you talk, referred to earlier which is the, the foundation of erotic life, in stillness and silence, even in kind of mindfulness-like experiences where it's awareness rather than thinking. And I think that's extremely important. That's really what I spend my entire life thinking about. As you know, the sex and relationship field is really composed of two kinds of people. One are people who basically, their origin is in the relationship realm. People like Esther Perel, people like Terry Real, and then you got people like myself whose origin is in the sex realm, who started out as sex therapists. And once you do one, you're obviously going to do both. To a sex therapist, the world looks very, very different because the sexual situation activates a different kind of mental software for people. We think differently, we feel differently when we're in a sexual situation. And that confuses people. One of the first things that I try to do in my book is to outline what happens to people's thinking and feeling when they get sexually aroused. And having listened to people for 30 years about this and asking people lots of questions about this, that's intensely curious about it, for 30 years, I came up with kind of broad outline of what I think it's like for most people. Obviously, no two people are identical. Everybody's got their own fingerprint. But for most people, when they're sexually aroused, they become highly absorbed or hypnotized or enchanted by what is going on that's erotic. And their other concerns kind of fly out the window. They lose time sense. They get this kind of fuzzy state where they kind of lose IQ points, or as I tell patients in my office, they get dumb and happy. You with me so far? I'm totally with you. Okay. Um, and the second attribute is that they regress. And as you know, as a therapist, there are lots of things that involve regression. And very often, regression to a more childlike uh, state of mind are some of the most blissful experiences that you have because we start out completely helpless in what's called the fourth trimester of life, where we can't do anything for ourselves. And because of the way primates act, everyone loves us immediately and thinks we're the most wonderful thing in the world and wants to bounce us up and down and feed us and hold us and rock us and tell us we're wonderful. And the imprint of that is so deep in human beings that we can't wait to have that experience in sex where people just want to hold us and rock us and tell us we're wonderful. Interesting. I, if I can interrupt you here for yeah. a minute, I have um, a number of clients, like at least five, yeah. um, who have early adoption histories Oh, and early, you know, early caregiver kind of breaks. Uh-huh. Um, and there, there's a disconnect right there in that moment where um, the, the connection feels, you know, it, that's the struggle. Wow. So they can actually describe for you that it feels like there's something regressive that's happening and then it stops happening? Yeah, it, it's it's as if, um, and I'm, this is a conglomerate of, of many right now, sure. but um, 
it's it's as if they don't know how to receive that 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 gentleness that that attention okay very interesting and uh, if you direct them along that roadmap that says that receiving that attention is what it's all about um do you find that they're able to pick up the clues and learn to do that on an intellectual level yes on a somatic level it's taking it, it's taking a different level of focus right. and that's the work okay all right um it's fascinating fascinating i hope that after this podcast we can talk more about this i would love to <laughs> yeah the person who wrote about this i think most convincingly uh a decade or two ago was Eileen Zolbrock, who wrote a book called Sex Smart about early childhood and how it affects uh, your sexuality. But there's definitely something to this. Yes. If somebody really did have experiences of uh, deprivation or neglect growing up, it really does uh, influence uh, what they can regress to because there may be uh, needing to regress to something which they never really experienced. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my. Dr. Snyder, I'm just going to pause you for a minute. I'm hearing something that sounds a little bit like a heartbeat um, as you're talking. And I just wanted to, I mean, it's its kind of a beautiful sound. I, I'm not really opposed to it. But. I clarify for anyone who's listening to this podcast, this is the Manhattan equivalent of a heartbeat, which is the, uh, the, a construction hammer down okay. the street. Okay, we'll, we'll make it work. I just wanted that, to make that, mention of it. Is that the beating of your heart or is it a construction hammer down the street? <laughs> the heart, it's the heart of Manhattan. It's the heart of Manhattan. <laughs> an important question for couples on a third day here in the city. <laughs> so we talked about um, absorption as part of what happens to us when we get aroused. We talked about regression to a more infantile state. As something that happens, and we regress and become more selfish. We just want to receive, and we just want the universe to treat us like the most wonderful thing in the world. And we're very bonded to our partner, but we don't really want to hear all about their day and everything. We just want them to make nice noises and tell us we're wonderful. And uh, the third part I call validation, which is there's something for people when they're in a very, very arousing sexual experience that feels like, yes, 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 that's the stuff. That's me. That's where I really live. This is where I really live. Everything else is just garbage. Um, this is where I've been meant to be all my life. And that's why people who are predominantly gay, but who are, say, are just a little bi, you know, they can usually have sex with somebody of the opposite gender, and everything works mechanically, the hard or wet, and orgasms and so forth. We still have that feeling of validation. Oh, yeah, 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 that's the stuff. That's me. So I always tell people that if you really want to pay attention to your own arousal, you want to pay attention to, is it absorbing you? Do you feel a little regressed, a little, you know, just kind of dumb and don't care about things? And you have that deep sense of validation that says, oh, yes, yes, it's this place. This is where I'm meant to be. So anyhow, I think of that as... A, uh, a rough sense of, of, of what arousal, what's it, what the landscape of arousal. Which is so helpful as we're diving into this conversation I, to get all of our listeners on that same page. And one, of the, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I couldn't find any of this in any book out there. There was a lot about technique. There was a lot about science. There was a lot about um, uh, variation, threesomes, non-monogamy, open marriage, that kind of thing. BDSM, but nothing about feelings. And the reason is that the feelings that people have in an erotic situation are nothing like the feelings they have in any other realm in their lives. They're deeply, deeply regressive. And that's why they deeply affect the sense of self. You know, a person has a wonderful sexual experience. It makes them really, really feel good about themselves. As opposed to a person having any other pleasure, you know, you have a great ride on a roller coaster or a good steak or something, you enjoy it, but it doesn't give you that validation feeling of, oh, I feel wonderful about myself if I eat that steak. And it just doesn't work that way. But there's something about sexuality and being aroused that just gives people that, that wonderful feeling that takes them in that special direction. And it's because the state of mind is totally different. It, it's making me think that it has something to do with the, va um, the vulnerability that 
we're opening ourselves to in the sexual space, uh -huh. that erotic space, and how that vulnerability has the potential to be so healing. I would say uh, vulnerability, yes. I would say vulnerability in a particular way. I would say vulnerability to regression. The same way a person in uh, therapy regresses. And has a feeling of, okay, I didn't have to be or control anything. I could just listen to what was really going on in my heart and mind. Uh, so it's, 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 um, it's also, yeah, I'm just going to sit with your words there. I don't need to add anything to it. I don't have to be or control anything. So I can just <laughs> sit with what's, what's happening in my heart and my mind. Yeah. So that brings us to stillness. Um, the stillness uh, actually comes from uh, Jewish scripture. I don't know if you know the passage, the, the phrase, the still small voice. Go ahead and share it with us for our listeners. You know about it? So I know where you're coming from. I, I know. I know of it. Yes. You know of it. Yeah. It's, it's the, the prophet Elijah was hiding from people who were trying to kill him. And he was hiding in a cave and he, he sees all and hears all sorts of flashes of amazing things and thunder and lightning and stuff. And then the text says that God, God was not in the thunder and the lightning. And all sorts of other amazing things happen. And he says, God was not in any of those things. And then he hears what in Hebrew is a kol demama daka, which is a voice of a thin silence. Or as it's usually translated, I think probably from King James Bible, it's a still small voice. And it says, and God was in a still small voice. I love that. I uh, love that too. It's <laughs> still small voice. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And that's the connection to mindfulness. Because Mindfulness is what arises naturally, as you know, when you let yourself just not get too attached to the other stuff that's going on in your head. Or as the Buddhists say, you let your thoughts come and go and you just don't feed them any teeth. Just don't give them teeth. And eventually they get tired and they go away. And you just note things and you know that you feel hot or cold or tired or hungry or whatever. And you just don't get too emotionally attached to it. And then eventually, you get more into a state of pure awareness, which is obviously an ideal state. Nobody achieves it uh, unless you're enlightened. And you hear that still small voice. And for most of us, that's very, very deeply validating experience. It's probably at the core of most religious experiences. Yeah. And so what I say in the book is that every couple develops kind of a private religion that only has two people that belong to it. And they have their little rituals and their little sacraments within that religion and making love is one of the prime sacraments within that religion. And it's the time when you really just get to be very, very still together. So the technique that I recommend for couples is an alternative to the traditional sex date. So the sex date is you make an appointment on the calendar to get in bed and having sex, which really doesn't work because you're not really hungry for sex at that point. So it's artificial. Instead, you make an appointment to go to bed together, take off all your clothes and do absolutely nothing. So you're still making an appointment. You're still yeah. prioritizing one another. Absolutely making an appointment. Because this is the 20%. You have to make an appointment. Right. And I think this is the place where so many couples get stuck. This, well, We don't need to schedule each other. I mean, we we're, we're, we live with each other. Or we're, we're together all the time. But they're not making that time for each other. They're not making time for each other. Yeah. And uh, so what they're doing, if they're not making the time for each other, is they're relying on desire. And that's a very iffy thing to rely on. That's like if you're a religious person relying on religious inspiration. Nah, nah, that's not going to work because you don't feel religious inspiration all the time. You don't even feel it most of the time. Most of the time you don't feel religious inspiration. So this is where I go in a very different direction from most sex books. Most of them say, well, let's do things to cultivate desire. Let's go someplace sexy. Let's do some kind of sexy thing together. Get some box with, we'll pull out cards and it'll say, touch your partner's toe or something like that. It's ridiculous. It doesn't work. Even the things that are sexy don't work. I mean, like Fifty Shades of Grey got a lot of women very excited for a week and a half, you know? And then it was like a child's Christmas toy. It's just like thrown in the corner. Nobody's interested anymore. That's the nature of desire. It's this childish, infantile part of our minds. And you put it in charge and try and just like, it's like spoiling a child by giving it too much of everything it wants. It doesn't, it doesn't really work. So I say the hell with desire. You don't need desire. And if you try to cultivate desire, 
you're going to end up driving yourself crazy. Instead, with the technique that I think is better for a couple, for most long-term couples, just go to bed together, not even thinking about desire, just to do nothing together and to let your mind, your thoughts go, maybe chat a little bit, let your thoughts be, but don't serve them any tea and just hang out and pay attention to, if you don't live in Manhattan, see the sky out the window and look at it together and feel your breath and feel your body in bed. And then after a while, if it happens, you may notice something erotically appealing about your partner and you want to just enjoy it. In the same way that uh, eating is better if you've already done some mindfulness practice or some yoga or whatever, sex is a lot better if you've done that too because you've tuned your instrument first. So that's what I recommend. I love that. And what's coming up for me as you're talking about this is that you're really talking about creating a container. Yes. I, I just went on a retreat recently with Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And one of the things that I came back with, one of the, her quotes that kind of is sitting with me, is that learning to create a container is perhaps the most important part of, of creating, of being inspired, is that we have to first have those containers in place for us. And so I'm hearing you talk about desire as this thing that we also, we need to create spaces for it to, for it to feel like it can emerge. Okay. I'm thinking about that. Um, a container. That's a well, little... In terms of a container here, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, you make an appointment, you go lay down in bed together. That's the yeah. container. I like that. I like that. I can relate to that. That's, that's concrete enough for, for a sex therapist to understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, uh, we, 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 we're, 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 we're heavily into the concrete. Yeah. Yeah. And so by container, I'm talking about time and intention. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and but it is it is a it's a, a bit of a sacrament I think um, unless one was turned off to that word by by having a too heavily repressive religious upbringing you know I think most people in the modern world they go you know we, we need a few more sacraments um, yeah. we've lost them As I I actually became religious about halfway through my life um, and one of the things that, that drew me towards religious life was that I grew up without any sacraments at all and I realized I needed them. I needed something. Uh, you know, my family would get together when I was growing up with Thanksgiving or whatever. We'd eat a meal, watch a ball game, and I think, yeah, there's got to be something more here. So I think for most couples, they do yearn for it to be something special, something perhaps a little spiritual in their relationship together. And sex provides an astonishingly good vehicle for doing that if you take care of it in the right way. I think, though, that most couples, um, they, uh, get taught to get into it at the most base level. Either they're going to watch porn together or they're going to watch a sexy movie or something. And it just, yeah, it gets them hungry maybe, but it doesn't really do anything to, to tune them up as, as erotic people in, in the, in the higher sense of the word. I know I'm speaking a little abstractly for, this, for a sex therapist, but I think you understand what I'm saying. I think I'm getting it. And, you know, it, it's, it's also making me think of something that you write about in your book where you're talking about, you know, when we try to force desire, yes, sooner or later we get a rebellion on our hands. I think you're, you said something along those lines in your book. And that, that to me is like the opposite <laughs> of this more spiritual, sacred connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, frankly, I don't really like the word desire. Um, I like the word inspiration. You know, you want lovemaking that inspires and that makes you feel good about yourself and about your partner and about the two of you as a couple. I know many couples who do this and they don't really experience much desire at all. You know, if they go, you know, a month or two without having sex with their partner, they, you know, they wouldn't particularly miss it. I'm talking about people, you know, over the age of 50 where a good night's sleep, frankly, is a little more enticing than a night of sex, which is kind of the opposite of when you're a teenager. But most people, as they get into midlife, what they really need is they need uh, inspiring experiences. Um, they may or may not experience much desire. I love where you're going with this. Can I pause you and ask you a question? Absolutely. <clears throat> I find that a lot of people don't realize that there's a shift that happens around this this transitionary point, this midlife point, yes. where when we're in our 50s and our 60s and our 70s, our sexuality, our how we connect, it's not meant to be the same as it was when we were 16 or 17. Exactly. Now you're you're very young though. How do you know this? 
Well, I'm I'm in my 40s and <laughs> I'm in my 40s and I've had clients who are across the spectrum. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wait till you hit 50 or good night's sleep. Really, really, really. I mean, that's the ultimate. <laughs> yeah, my husband turns 50 this year. We're there. Okay. <laughs> Ask him. He'll tell you. He'll tell you. Uh, we know what sleep does. Yeah. <laughs> it's even better than when we can go to sleep holding each other. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Which is the next thing I want to talk about. I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Our, um, the next thing I want to talk about is that a couple shouldn't wait for times when it's on the calendar, when they're going to have their do nothing time together. They shouldn't wait for that to feel excited together because you can enjoy feeling excited together even for a minute or two. And as you know, from reading my book, I call this simmering where you just let yourself have that with the understanding that it's not necessarily going to lead to sex. So, most couples forget to do that. They treat excitement or arousal as like an uncomfortable state. And we don't want to stimulate that because it might be frustrating. Frustration uh, in small quantities is a good thing in a relationship. So a lot of women, for instance, avoid doing anything that's going to get their partner, male partner hard because they're worried he'll get frustrated. It's like if they were responsible for making him get hard, they're responsible for resolving this or relieving him of the hardness by orgasm. And it's just not the case at all. I've had therapists come back to me and say, you know, I read your book and then I talked to my husband. I said, is that true? That when you're hard, you don't need to ejaculate every time? He goes, yeah, yeah, absolutely, that's true. And the woman goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> I've been avoiding trying to get you hard all the time for fear that I was going to make you frustrated. Oh, that's so sad. There's, just, there's so much potential of, for connection and just fleeting moments Absolutely. that we're missing out on. You were talking about going to bed with your partner. You know, cuddling in bed before you fall asleep is very nice, but simmering in bed before you fall asleep is even nicer. You know, holding in a way that really is erotic, experiencing getting excited together, perhaps him even getting hard, perhaps her even getting wet perhaps them getting a little dumb and happy there in bed together and then falling asleep. Falling asleep dumb and happy is one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> <laughs> and waking up dumb and happy is nice. And uh, cooking dinner dumb and happy is nice. And kissing each other goodbye in the morning dumb and happy is nice. You can literally uh, cultivate arousal for its own sake all through the day. And that's really the ticket to having an erotic marriage. Most couples these days don't have sex often enough to really keep an erotic connection going, or as I say in the book, to keep the erotic climate in a relationship at a warm enough level. And that's what you mean. When you're talking about simmering, it's that it doesn't always have to be about sex that's keeping that climate warm. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No, it's much more the simmering than the sex. Now, I live in Manhattan where we've got jackhammers going on all day long and everybody, you know, works insane hours. I know they do all over the country. Um, but in Manhattan, it's kind of like uh, required. And I don't know anybody who has been uh, together, any couple who's been together more than a year in Manhattan that has sex during the week. Everybody has sex during the weekend. And they pretty much have to schedule it, either before the kids wake up or after the kids go to bed. Or before you go out to dinner, that's really important because after you go out to dinner, you've had some wine and you're stuffed and you're too tired and you just want to fall asleep. Before you go out to dinner is very good. You go out to dinner to celebrate. But if you're just having sex once a week, which frankly is what most long-term couples do these days, the average frequency of sex is about 50 times a year these days. It's down from what it was several decades ago. So um, if that's the case, you're really not going to be connecting erotically frequently enough to keep a real erotic connection going. It's better than not having sex uh, at all, but it's still not good enough. You really also have to have those times where you fall asleep dumb and happy. And it should be understood. And a couple needs to develop a vocabulary to talk about it, where a person says, can I just simmer you for my own pleasure? And the other person says, yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, and, you also talk about some other really practical techniques in addition to simmering. Um well, we talked about simmering, mm -hmm. and earlier we talked about going to bed to do nothing, which in my book I call the two-step. Yep. And uh, 
first step is doing nothing together, which is a mindfulness practice. And the second step is whatever kind of sex you want to have. And the only other technique that I recommend specifically is some version of what Masters and Johnson called sensate focus, which I recommend in the section on long-term relationships. And it's for people who usually have more specific problems where they really require specific healing, like the people that you mentioned who perhaps had some early childhood neglect um, or abandonment and really have a difficult time regressing. So it gives them just some extra time to do that. But for most couples, just the simmering during the week and having sex using this two-step method on the weekend is perfectly fine. And you don't have to worry about whether you're having any desire or not. You just enjoy good arousal for its own sake. Oh, I love that. It's, it's such, um, such, such a pressure-releasing prescription. Well, that's the intent. You know, so somebody, some of my colleagues, have the book, they say, you know, the overall message is, it's going to be all right. See, a lot of couples get worried. First of all, they're comparing themselves to everybody else, and they think everybody else is having great sex, and they realize, you know, that their erotic thermostat perhaps has just turned out a little bit. They're not experiencing much desire, and they don't know that that's okay. They don't know that that happens in virtually all relationships. It's just the nature of things. You know, as uh, Terry Real was saying on, on his segment on your show, you know, if, if we were intended to have this, this hot sex all the time, we'd be having these affairs and stuff. You don't really get that thing really in a long-term relationship. It's different. It has a totally different complexion to it. Yeah. Long-term relationships feel to me like they're, it's, it's a whole nother level of spiritual growth. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you play it right, sexual experience can be uh, an important part of that spiritual growth. It's a moment of stillness. It's a moment, ideally, of mutual regression and validation that, that can really be at the heart of a, of a couple's relationship. Yeah. Really being able to accept one another and to accept ourselves, to fall into those more pleasurable places, to receive pleasure, to open ourselves up to that surrender and to, to be able to kind of live in that space and grow with somebody um, over time. That's absolutely. Although I would say that um, we sex therapists take a slightly different sense because we're a little wary when it gets behind bedroom doors of the idea of growth. Um, growth, I think is a wonderful idea outside the bedroom. Um, inside the bedroom, I like to think of just getting dumb enough. I don't like to worry about growing because um, yeah. that's a pressure monkey. That is a pressure monkey. You're right. I like I like that uh, in your work where you talk about disease and dis-ease um, and that what you really want to cultivate is, is ease. And in my book, the word I use is easy. Um, the sex therapy is the art of the easy. Guys come to see me all the time and they want to know, all right, give me exercises I can do so I can, you know, become a stronger lover. And I go, oh my God, I'm going in totally wrong direction. You just really want to get dumb and happy. It should be easy. It's not easy. Don't do it. Well, so when I talk about growth a lot, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, we, we go through these cycles of connection and disconnection. And then sometimes I'll follow that up by saying that we go through cycles of connection, disconnection, repair, and growth. That's true. You know, thinking of it kind of like a, kind of like a season, kind of like the cycles of the seasons. Okay. Um, Couples who are together a long time do find that there are certain seasons that are more passionate than others. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, you know, in, in terms of the quote unquote growth, um, how much of that, you know, in, in my, in my mind is, you know, kind of how we sort of up level ourselves, how we, how we do some of the healing um, the more soul-based healing that maybe we're, we're looking for and how we have access to that with our partners, perhaps in longer term relationships over time. I think certainly being more deeply known, or as you say in your work, being seen, more deeply seen. I think that's, that's a, a very wonderful thing. And I think, I, I think the, the word growth is appropriate there in terms of learning that, uh, you're enough and that you're okay. Yeah. Be seen and can be fully seen. It's certainly highly, highly, highly validating, and can prompt a feeling of tremendous relief and a, a good feeling. Um, and sometimes that can lead to uh, a, uh, 
uh, a real feeling of uh, sexual new territory. Um, not always, though. Sometimes it doesn't particularly. Right. And so you, you can't kind of expect that it's necessarily going to, to lead to uh, uh, new, new, new sexual territory. I think, though, one of the things that does tend to really lead to new sexual territory is when you insist on being seen. And when you do speak up, um, it's like Perry Real and you talked about, you know, it's that women finding their voices and men opening their hearts. I think for a lot of women, finding your voices is, is something that's not so easy because there are certain dark currents which I think we inherit from hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution. And there's also uh, societal pressures and things about not speaking up. And uh, I think that, that it is a lot, it's tricky for a lot of women to find their voices. Not so easy for men to do either. So I think if you do find your genuine voice, I think that tends to be erotic. So when I'm thinking about your work in this context, I'm thinking about how you you talk to your readers in your book about really finding their own pleasure. Uh-huh. Right? And I'm thinking this connects to finding your voice. Because when you can stay focused um, on maintaining your own pleasure sexually and staying focused on yourself that's really a, that's that's your voice well the, the word that i use in the book is selfishness um which throws a lot of people's heads the wrong way they go what do you mean selfishness isn't sex supposed to be about generosity and uh, pleasuring your partner and i go no absolutely it's not absolutely not i mean that's nice too but it's not usually so erotic um you know if you imagine two scenarios. One, if your partner is totally focused on giving you the maximum pleasure, um, and the other where your partner is totally wanting to just consume you because they just find you so irresistible and they just selfishly want to just eat you up. And most people will go for the second. Selfishness tends to be erotic. And that's 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 passion. Um, the, the archetype, I think, for this, um, although this is just in my imagination, thinking about the infantile or regressive aspect of erotic life is mother enjoying her baby's feet. And she's not doing this in order to give her baby pleasure. She's not thinking, oh, I'll just kiss the baby's feet right this way and the baby will really like that. No, she's just consuming the baby's feet. And she's just, just, just selfishly drinking in the experience. And the baby, if all goes well, has this non-verbal on whatever level of experience that someone is taking absolute joy in their existence. Now, for most of us, I think that's just like the foundation of eroticism. So it's that taking selfish joy in the other person's existence that I think is really the most erotic thing. I, I hope that that fits with what you're saying. I think it totally fits with what you're okay, saying. Okay, yes. good, good. Um, and uh, I think that the, the extension of this to outside the bedroom is, is the idea of differentiation, which is asserting really what you need and think and feel, um, even when the other person needs and thinks and feels something different. And um, that's really the core of what creates a couple's confidence in each other, that they can figure out creatively what to do in such situations. These situations do happen in sex. Um, for instance, a, uh, woman, for her, the ultimate experience where she feels that ultimate sense of, uh, eroticism and surrender, uh, is cunnilingus. And she just likes that more than anything else in the world. And her partner doesn't really get turned on by doing cunnilingus. And that's an issue. That's a situation where both of them may really have to think in very, very great detail about what they really need. She may have to think, okay, now what is it I really like about cunnilingus? Do I like the tongue? Do I like the warmth of the breath? Do I like the fact that he's between my legs? Do I like the sensation? Do I like the fact that I know I can feel his desire for me? What is it? And the man has to think, okay, now what? What is not turning me on now? And so they need to get into fine detail and think to myself, okay, where can we go with this where we're both getting our needs met? Because if one of us isn't getting our needs met in this interaction, 
then it's not going to have the right flow to it. It's going to feel like just doing it just to get your partner off, which is not going to create good sex. Now, occasionally it happens that two people just really aren't a good sexual couple. That can happen. And uh, it would be nice if these things were things that you would select on a dating profile. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, it's not. And I always think, you know, if, if you're not really heavily committed to each other and you find that you're just really just the things that you both really want and need sexually are just very, very different. And sometimes it's just, you know, it's, it's worth saying, is this really worth it? But if you are a committed couple and there's something where you find that your sexual needs really are different, then you usually have to figure out, as with any other couple's negotiation, what to do. The only difference is that what you do, in my mind at least, has to be gratifying for both people. It can't be a person just kind of like uh, um, uh, saying, okay, I'll give you a blowjob, you know, once a year on your birthday or something like that. Because that's not really what we want. We don't really want the other person to just generously do something that we like. Instead, we really want the other person to to find that it's, it's, it's they're liking it too. You know, this is this is bringing something else up for me, which might be a little divergent, but um, I would, okay. So I'm guessing in your practice, you you perhaps see this too. Couples where in so many realms of their life, they're a great couple, and sexually speaking, there's like nothing there. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. See it all the time, and like yourself, I scratch my head about it sometimes. The, the, the meaning of that is something deep within them. Something like, uh, if somebody feels really good to me, I can't feel erotically towards them. You know, the classic is the Madonna whore kind of thing. So sometimes it's something like that. Sometimes the couple is really too close. They're doing what Heinz Kohut in the old psychoanalytic days called twinning, where they're gratifying each other's, uh, uh, self-esteem by imagining that they're really the same person, that they feel the same about so many different things. There's that's, not enough mystery. There's not, a, that's, that's erotically deadened. I would say that's too energetically expensive because it's not really true. And you can't really, you're having to keep up that thing about the two of you being the same. Where you really want to go erotically is where you're different. That's really where it's erotic. Or as you say, not enough mystery. Um, I always tell my wife, I don't understand her at all. And she goes, good. The other thing is the, uh, the thing which I'm sure you hear, and I kind of dread this when I hear this on the phone from people requesting an appointment is we're best friends. You know, we're just yeah. best friend in the whole world. And they go, oh no, God, no, God, no, that's the worst. Um, you don't want your mate to be your best friend in the whole world. And, um, it's just, uh, it, it, it's too much. It's too much of a burden. And I don't think in general we want to make love with our best friends. What's your take on that? You know, I, I, I dance with it um, because oh. in some ways, in, in the few places in my life, my mate is my most trusted person. Um, I don't know if I would, I, I, don't, I don't think I would necessarily put best friend on there. Yeah, my wife is yeah. not, not my best friend. Yeah, he, he's um, my most trusted person. He's my lover. He's the person I do more things with than anybody else. I, d I don't know about best friend. Yeah, she's, she's definitely not my best friend, although she's my most trusted person. Sometimes she's my enemy. Yeah. And uh, that's okay. I, 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 I tell couples that's fine. That's totally fine, especially from the standpoint of eroticism. Uh, there's some nice little blends you can get in there sometimes. So um, I think... Uh, there are pressures that people feel. They have ideals, you know, that your mate should be your best friend or that you should feel the same about all sorts of things. Um, and uh, sometimes those ideals uh, are really erotically deadening. I find that, that a lot of these pressures are erotically deadening, even the pressures to perform, the pressures to have sex X number of times a week, the sex, you know, whatever the pressure is that when we're adding the pressures in, those are the things that... You and I talked about at the beginning of this 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 podcast. If you, you put pressure on the erotic mind, uh, it tends to just rebel. Basically, because it's just a two year old, you know, at best, and it'd be like telling a two year old, "Okay, you got to go do this." And the two year old says, "Well, I got to do something. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to." 
I just right. want to eat, I just want to eat ice cream and have everybody say yay. That's basically where we all live erotically. So given that our erotic selves are such small children, ultimately, I think what we really want to do, you know, at the risk of this sounding cliche, is we want to be good parents to our erotic children. I, see, I love that. I see this all the time with with affairs, where people get into affairs. And how did they get into affairs? Usually is they had a feeling, I've struggled, I've uh, sacrificed, and I deserve this. I deserve to have this affair. This is coming to me. And the best antidote usually, and I speak kind of as a religious person, is to use the Tenth Commandment. And the Tenth Commandment says, Thou shalt not covet. And nobody really knows what covet means. The traditional interpretation of covet is thinking something is yours when it's really not. So the best move to make when you think, you know, I really deserve this, is to say, you know, it's not yours. And many times, a person, if they take that route, they can go, okay, I understand. It's a little bit like a parent talking to a child and saying, no, you can't have that. It's not yours. It's a firm limit. And, and it's those firm limits that I think societally we struggle with. We don't, so many of us have not received them or received ones that we didn't need. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that's the struggle is learning how to reparent ourselves. That's so much of my work with couples um, and not to reparent our partners, but to really do that work for ourselves. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, frankly, we, we, we have so many superpowers now as individuals in the 21st century that we can go beyond limits all the time. There really aren't these firm limits. And as a consequence, people are experimenting more with things where you, who needs the limits? Um, you know, uh, historically, if uh, somebody moved to another town, that was it. You know, long distance phone calls were very expensive. You could write letters, but that was hard. Nowadays, you know, you can be on FaceTime continuously and you can have uh, teledildonic devices where you can simulate sex with each other. Um, you can do all sorts of things. The idea, you know, and a lot of the affairs that get started now, they start on social media. And uh, text is extremely erotic. And we never had that magical superpower to send text before. So I think the idea of limits in the 21st century really, really interesting. I think it's, I think it's part of the medicine that many of us need. Um, you also say something else. You're, you were talking in the book about um, about the commandments in this kind of way, and you said, you know, one of the ones that we often hear is, do unto others as you would like others to do unto you. <laughs> right, right, right. <clears throat> right? But then you, you put a twist on that. Do you want to share that with our listeners? Yeah. This is the twist. If you know well, as a, as a therapist, uh, the golden rule, do to others uh, as you would have them do to you, which was known to the ancient Hebrews and the ancient Greeks and pretty much everybody. Um, the real golden rule, um, as you know, as a therapist, is do unto others as was done to you. And that's what we all have to be wary of, because all of us had things done to us which we hated, and yet we're always doing to other people. And, and sometimes it, in there, in the things that were done to us, it's also things that weren't done, like the places where we weren't seen or the places where oh, we weren't. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And as the trauma people talk about, although those, those places were unhappy, they're still home. And you take mice and you put them in a, like a ramshackle, very deprived kind of environment. And then uh, you put them somewhere else and ring a bell or shock them or something. They're going to go back to that home. And we all go back to those situations that we knew growing up. And there are lots of explanations for why we do this. But it does seem to be something fundamental in our wiring. We learn what's home. And we imprint things. And we imprint with certain ways in which we were treated or not treated or perhaps uh, uh, tormented or neglected. And we get attached to them. And we often do that to people around us unconsciously. And this is what I mean in the book about enactments. We don't get to it till the end until we talk about lots of sexual stuff. But in long-term relationships, enactments are crucial. Long-term relationships really survive based on positive enactments. All sorts of positive stuff that we receive from people around us growing up, we enact those and we give those to the people around us. We were loved, and so we expect to be loved. And we love other people, we expect them to love us back because everybody always did. And it works really nicely that way. But if it didn't work that way and you had negative experiences, you tend to repeat those. I'm obviously not saying anything new. The classic example is uh, the experience that every parent has had of doing to their children the exact things that their parents did to them that they hated. 
And I think every parent has one of those moments. Oh my God, I am my parent. One, hundreds, <laughs> hundreds. And uh, usually what that's based on is what we call identification with the aggressor. They talk a lot about toward the end of the book, um, which is you're identifying with the person who wasn't harmed in the interaction. Um, there was a, a, a perpetrator and a victim. You were originally the victim. Now you're the perpetrator. Unconsciously, you're saying to yourself, thank God it's not me. Thank God it's not me who's on the other end. And the trick usually is to remember how awful it was to be the victim and go, oh my God, you're trash. I never want to do that. I'm really sorry. A lot of times people do this the most if they don't really remember fully how terrible it was to be the victim. It's making me think of the drama triangle. Have you, you're familiar with this? That's it's a like, term that I don't know off the top of my head. So it, it's basically, it's this upside down triangle. I can't remember the therapist who came up with this and I'll, I'll find that to attribute. But um, basically the, it's an upside down triangle and at each corner there's a different position. There's the rescuer, the persecutor and the victim, the victims at the bottom. And the idea is that if you take on any of these roles within the triangle at any point, you're going to dance around into other roles and you're, you're creating a new enactment. That's rich. I like it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I find that that's, it's, it's a really helpful way for me to visualize often what's happening in the room with my, with my couples and also within my own life. Um, so I that's. Really, I really appreciate that because, you know, we're, we're basically loving creatures, um, but we're also aggressive creatures. And uh, when we're made unhappy, we can get hostile and, you know, aggressive and we can repeat all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, bad stuff. Yeah. And, and the erotic space is another space where we can do that. Yes. Yes. Um, which is weird. And uh, there's uh, a lot more uh, play in the erotic space than there used to be. I don't know what to make of that. Um, there's a lot more uh, uh, bondage, dominance, submission, and masochism and stuff. I have young people, uh, you know, you know, young young woman, you know, will, will uh, be on a date, and you know, the date will say, "You want me to choke you?" Um, and I go, "What?" You know, I, I'm 62. I never heard a woman say that when I was dating. It's, these things have become kind of part of the common parlance in ways I don't truly understand. Right. As has the other side of it, the just pulling away that, you know, somehow we can be partners for over a lifetime with each other and not, not be erotic with each other. Yes. Yes. And that's happened more and more as well. I always figure one of the reasons is because historically sex has been the main way we get this kind of healthy narcissistic supplies, being told we're wonderful, getting all the attention from the other person. And most of us, that's one of the reasons we have sex rather than just masculine is to be reflected in the other person's eyes. However, these days with electronics, you know, our electronic devices, they're always happy to see us and they think we're the most important person in the world and they light up and show us pretty colors and they take us all over the world and they introduce us to all sorts of people who are also happy to see us and we get likes, faves and we, you know, write things and do things and other people respond to them. And that's tremendously narcissistically rewarding. So we're getting enough dopamine elsewhere we don't need our partners anymore well um it, it could be I, you know dopamine is, is the hormone of excitement and novelty um i think uh the other i don't know if there's a hormone for it is just the hormone of validation and just you know what i call healthy narcissism which all of us need and historically the only way you could get healthy narcissism you could get narcissistic gratification outside of a conventional relationship was to be famous. You know, if you were a Hollywood star, you got lots of narcissistic gratification from your public. Right. But these days, you don't even have to be famous to get your marriage just as messed up as it used to get for Hollywood stars. Because that was their problem. They were getting so much narcissistic gratification outside their marriage that their marriage is just withered. And I, as you say, a lot of people are disconnecting in their own relationships simply because it's uh, more narcissistically gratified to, to be interacting with new people on Facebook than with that same old person who's in bed with you. Yeah. I, I think we're, we're losing a language in a way of th that language of stillness and connection. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think because of electronic media, we don't need each other in the same way for the same things. Our, our, our you know, electronic social webs are, are much more extensive, much more diffuse. Well, I think we think we don't need each other. And then that's why people are showing up in my office and your office. And yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, this has been so rich, and I want to make sure that our listeners know where they can learn more about you and your work. Sure. Um, you can always find me at sexualityresource.com or on my book page, which is loveworthmaking.com. And uh, the book is Love Worth Making, which is just love making with the words, word worth stuck in the middle. And uh, that's available anywhere, Amazon or wherever books are sold. And uh, be eager to hear any feedback from anybody who uh, wants to take a look. And if, if folks don't already know, I'm a huge fan of this book. And many of the couples that I work with in my practice read it as well. Thank you so much. Oh, but, gosh. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for much. joining. <laughs> we'll talk further about some of those other things we talked yeah. about. Thank, Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. This was amazing. Okay, great. Great. A lot of fun for me, too, and very eye-opening. I learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think I did as well. Um, I just I love the way you you put it all together um, in such a digestible way. All right. <laughs> it's a lot of big concepts, but it, I feel like it's the conversation was fluid and easy to understand at the same time. Uh, tell my wife that somebody said I was digestible. So like, <laughs> So I would love to hear what you take away from today's episode. Is it getting dumb and happy with your partner? Is it shifting your focus to wanting to consume your partner? What What is it about today's episode that um, gave you maybe a little aha moment? I want to hear from you. I also wanted to let you know a little bit more about how you can work with me. I maintain my relationship therapy practice in New York, and I also run intensive couples retreat experiences. You can learn more about both at connectfulness.com. You can also join my Connectfulness community. It's a virtual community, and it's totally free. That's at connectfulness.com community. And if you're a therapist in private practice, then check out the Connectfulness Collective. Come root in with us over at connectfulness.com collective. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. A few extra little gratitudes. I'd like to thank Christy Hausler, my behind-the-scenes amazing podcasting team, Sarah and Chris Farris at Kidney Stone Studio for the delicious soundtrack music, Blue Rabbit Studios for the cover art, and please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Stay tuned for our next episode with Mercedes Samudio. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com events.